And then suddenly it was like I was out of my body and I was in the presence of the most incredible woman. She was exquisite. She was cloaked in a shawl of shimmering white light. And she was just standing there before me and she was emanating incredible energy, like very strong energy. It, she was so beautiful and shimmering with light. It was almost felt almost more physical than physical. The energy was so strong. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of sacred journeys, spirit encounters, near-death experiences, angels, mysteries, marvels and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary people reveal their extraordinary encounters. I acknowledge the Darawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land of Sutherland Shire in Australia, where I live and record Spirit Sisters, and I recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and community. I pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to Spirit Sisters. I'm your host, Karina Machado. Welcome back to the show, or if you're joining us for the first time, it's so lovely to have you with us. My guest today is Joe Buchanan. Joe is the author of The Final Mystery, a memoir that explores the notion that we all have agency to create a life that's aligned with our sole purpose. Joe, who lives in Melbourne, Australia, is a wise and warm soul with an illustrious spiritual heritage. In 1927, her father, Les Danby, joined a mediumship circle led by a quietly spoken fellow called Stan Walsh. The astonishing phenomena Les witnessed in these spiritual circles led him to write a book called The Certainty of Eternity, which I read and really enjoyed. In our conversation, Joe shares more about being born into the understanding that consciousness survives death and tells us all about her upbringing in this amazing family and shares about the incredible collection of apports that she has inherited from her father. I'll be posting photos of those on my social media as well. Some really great images there. Now, before we get into it, here's a bit more about Jo. In the 1960s, she worked as a primary school teacher in Melbourne and Sydney schools until she married jazz musician Tony Buchanan and had her children Miles, Beth and Simone. All three are actors who became familiar faces on Australian television. For 15 years, Jo worked on film and TV sets as chaperone and schoolteacher to child actors. Then, after studying psychotherapy and becoming a counsellor, Jo worked in mental health. At the same time, she cared for her sister and nephew who both lived with schizophrenia. The year she turned 50, after a series of tragic personal losses... Jo sold her house in order to finance her lifelong dream of exploring sacred sites of Egypt, the Mayan jungles in Mexico, and the Native American reservations in Arizona, where she was invited to participate in ancient traditional ceremonies. These are the spiritual adventures we're about to dive into today, as Jo looks back on these sacred journeys and shares her life-changing spiritual experiences and learnings. Get ready for some wonderful stories, including an unforgettable encounter Joe had with the white buffalo calf woman, who's a sacred figure for the Lakota people. Finally, I want to thank the Spirit Sisters listener who suggested I interview Joe. If there's someone you'd love me to interview on the show, please drop me a line. For now, enjoy my conversation with Joe Buchanan. Welcome to Spirit Sisters, Joe. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a delight to have you. I loved your memoir, The Final Mystery, and I would oh, thank you. Oh, it was, it's a it's a wonderful read. It's captivating, and oh, great. yeah. Uh, what I thought we could do is begin by by starting in the same way that your memoir did, really, which is with you telling us the story of what happened the year you turned fifty. You made. Right. Yeah, you made a momentous decision to pursue a long-held dream of yours to travel and immerse yourself in in various spiritual traditions. Tell us about what your life was like at around that time, please, Joe. What was going on and what was sort of the background to this yearning that had arisen in you? 
okay. Um, oh, well, see, all my life I had, I was, I've been obsessed with Egypt right from a child, so that that existed. So I guess it was natural that when this happened, when I it turned 15, I decided to take this big step. I guess it was natural that it would be Egypt, the country that I'd want to go to. Um, but what was happening at the time when I made the decision to do this, so I was 50 years of age, and it was basically um, a time I had gone through probably, well, from the 70s, um, 1970s, I had been, I'd started on caring for my sister who lived next door and she lived with schizophrenia. She was a very talented artist and, um, but she unfortunately lived with schizophrenia, but she said the medication stopped her creativity so she'd take herself off it. So a lot of things would happen which I had to cope with and, and she had a, a son Joel my nephew and because she couldn't look after him I, I took him on I was a single mum with three kids so I took Joel on as well so I was looking after the both of them then gradually as time went by my son developed a, a serious mental illness and I became his carer as well and then at that time also, a very, my, one of my closest friends died and my father died. And I was working in Sydney, looking after, caring for people, but working as well, but also flying down to try to help my mother as well in Melbourne because only on a weekend I'd do that because she was grieving the loss of her husband, her daughter, her grandson, of course. Um, and it's like the years went by and this is how I lived. That's exactly how I lived. There was nothing else in my life except for, you know, all of this caring and the worry and especially of my, my poor son as well. And um, at this time, um, it, when I was turning 50, when I made this decision, round about then, everything happened, suddenly crashed and my uh, my nephew who I was caring for he he didn't take his medication either and um, unfortunately a healer or a natural therapist encouraged him to go off his medication and said look those voices you hear uh, are, are not uh, you know don't worry about them you're just channeling voices you're channeling spirits so he he felt he had you know, it was okay to be off the medication, but then the voices said to him that if you take your life, there will be immediate world peace. And he thought that was fantastic. So that's exactly what he did. He took his life. He's still a teenager. And then um, my poor sister, uh, she died just about eight weeks after that. And... Um, and of course, it was not long after Dad had died and my best friend had died, and I was coping with the grief of their deaths and with my son's illness. But then Mum started to cope better. My son happened to be in a really good rehabilitation uh, place where I couldn't actually visit him so for a while. So, and my sister and my nephew had gone. So I decided, look, I think I have to do something for myself. And that's when I decided, look, what can I do? But I, I didn't have the money to do what I wanted to do, which was travel to Egypt. But then I realized that even though I was renting a place in Whale Beach, I did own um, a house in Mullumbimby, which I had bought and it was meant to be my security for my old age and so on. And I made the sort of what people, some people thought was a rash decision. I sold the house in order to just get away and go to Egypt and try to, you know, manifest my, my dreams that I've had all my life of going to Egypt, even though I had been there once with my mother. But um, that was a very, very brief visit. And so I, that's what happened. That's, that's, that they were the things that led up to me making the decision to drop everything and go to Egypt. It was only, I was only going to go for three weeks, you know. But it was a, a, a quite an incredible thing to happen because it changed my life, really.
It did, and that really comes across in your book because it became a, a kind of a longer odyssey, which we'll go into. But yes. um, thank you, Joe, for sharing all of that background. I, it's just absolutely mind-blowing, the loss that you suffered around that yes. time. There's, there was so much. And, and also I think many of our audience members will relate to the sense of losing yourself in caring yes. for another and attending to another, even though you love them. But there's this sense of losing yourself. Thank you for sharing that because that will resonate in the hearts of many of us, I, I, I suspect. Oh, thank you for that. Yes, I mean, I it, I didn't have any objection to the caring. I wanted to care. Um, but it's just that, you know, as any carer listening to this would know, you do get burnout and you... And because you're devoted completely to that, there's nothing happening in your own life anymore. So it's not as if I didn't want to care. I did want to, but of course, with the deaths and everything else, suddenly I was faced, and my son being safe, suddenly I was faced with the opportunity of doing something for myself. Wow, what a journey you went on to take. Tell us about your, your trip. Well, I, I went, I did three trips actually. The first time I went to Egypt. And then I came back and then I, I realized that I had also always wanted to go to North America to where the Native American Indians were and to where the Mayan Indians were in the jungles of Mexico. And I also wanted to swim with dolphins in the ocean in Hawaii. So I, I did a second trip and did that. And then I did a third trip and I went to England and Wales and that was great. And anyway, my whole life changed completely after that which we could come to a bit later, if you like. Yes. Tell us about returning to Egypt. As you said, you went there when you were younger with your mum, but that was a brief visit. And it is yes. a country that had always echoed in your heart as a part of you. What was it yes. like to return there and, yes, and have right. these amazing experiences? Yes, it was as if when I went there, when I went there the first time in the early 1960s with my mother, uh, it was only we only went there because we were actually on our way to Europe, and the ship had stopped at Port Said, and we were allowed to go just for a day to Cairo. And I felt as if I was returning home. I felt as if I was returning back to where I was meant to be living, and it, and I always wanted to return. So that is why, when I was fifty, I chose to go there, and. Um, it was like definitely like going home, and I um, I was different in Egypt. No, I always have been. Um, it's like I had much more energy. I was happier. Everything was terrific. I, I really loved the loved the place, and I've been seventeen times now. How beautiful! Yeah. And you you relate an amazing story in your book, and I think anybody who's listening up to this point will have a sense that perhaps there's some past life connection between you and and Egypt. And indeed, yes. in your book, you relate an experience that seems to be a, a spontaneous recall of a past life that you had there as a sixteen year old girl. Yes, um, I, one time, one day when I was there in Egypt, I, I went there and. Um, I, I sat. I went to a place, a, a certain place where the sacred lake is, in um, in Luxor, in, at the temple, Karnak Temple, and I I was just sort of sitting there, and I had recall. I, I was meditating, and then it was as if I, I had gone back into a past life. I, I, I could. I could feel the emotion. It was incredible, and in it, I was—I uh, felt I was a sixteen-year-old young girl who had who had a job. It was a very humble sort of job. It was working at the temple, but looking after children who the people of the temple, the priests of the temple, were looking after, and there were children who the, the people at the time thought were incredibly special children but in fact they were children with a mental illness um, but they were considered very very special children and I was looking after them and that was a wonderful um, experience but then I went it, in my memory of what I did I did something that wasn't very good did you want to you share yes yeah, share more <laughs> about what what happened in this lifetime in Egypt 
Yes, well, what happened was that um, I was a young, this young girl and I had a crush on her. Um, this, I just feel a bit silly talking about this, but this is how it came to me, that I had a crush on this guy who was the captain of a ship that used to go right up the Nile and would get to, would come to where I was. And then when he came there, I would go off with him. This particular time in, when I was in the meditation, I saw myself jumping up because he had arrived. So I left what I was meant to be doing, which looking at, which was looking after the kids, and I went to meet him. Then I spent time with time with him. So I, I wouldn't have have a clue how long, perhaps a couple of hours, and until somebody came looking for me, and there was a lot of yelling and screaming, and I ran back to the lake, the sacred lake, and three of the children who I'd meant to be looking after had drowned. And I joined in in dragging their bodies out. In fact, one of them was my brother. They were only young. And um, I felt that it, it was I was responsible for their deaths. And um, it was the most shocking experience. And I remember thinking the thing that stood out more than anything else was that this will never happen again. I remember thinking, when I got back to the hotel that night, I wrote that down, this will never happen again. It stood out in, in, in as a part of that memory of that past life. And then later I thought to myself, maybe that's why I, I gave up probably two decades of my own life in looking after my sister my nephew and my son, maybe there was some unconscious memory that I had to do this, you know. I don't know, mm. you know. I, I have no idea whether that's true or not. But it did sort of link in with um, what I ended up doing this, this current lifetime. It I, certainly does. I didn't does. stop looking after my sister, my nephew, my son. I, I actually sacrificed everything to do that, except for my work. But, um, yeah, so I didn't really have a social life <laughs> during those times, yeah. No, well, uh, yes, like the parallels are, are amazing. So as a, as a young girl in Egypt, you were responsible for young people with mental illness and in this current lifetime in Sydney, it's a very similar story, or it was. Yes. And what, um, what was your work as well? So, it, I mean, you were juggling so much in caring and not to mention weekend trips to Melbourne to look yes. after your mum as well. Like there's just so much there that it's tiring to even hear. But, and what, what about your work? What was that and how did you squeeze yes, that in? Uh, well, I loved my work too. See, originally earlier I had been a school teacher before I was caring for my, you know, family members, but at the t that time, when I was 15, all around about that time, um, I was actually practicing as a clinical hypnotherapist, um, a past life regressionist through hypnotherapy, and I took workshops and classes um, at, in the evenings uh, for at meditation and healing, and I loved that. I really loved that too. And the weekends that I didn't go to Melbourne, I had weekend workshops in, in um, healing, meditation, past life workshops. And one of the best, um, one night a week, one of the best things I did, I, I used to love going into a, a maximum security prison called Malawa. And in Malawa, there were um, women who had you know, committed murder, who'd committed horrendous crimes and I took meditation classes in there with them and I loved doing that as well. So that was the work I was doing at the time. Wonderful. And what what sort of results were you seeing with the women in the prison and meditation? Oh, fantastic. Um, really, I, I just loved it. Well, I'll give you, can give you a couple of examples. That'd be lovely. Thank you. One called Judy. She had she was in because she for many many um, robberies, and when she eventually she she kept, became a part of the meditation group, along with others, and it was fantastic because they all really embraced the meditation. They embraced healing. Um, they what happened was that I, I sort of got them all interested in the Native American spirituality too, and they decided they wanted to have a totem animal, you know, and they thought, well, what, what have we got here at the prison that can be a totem animal? We've only got cockroaches and mice and things like that. But then Julie, who was one of them, 
said, but hang on, when we go outside in the, into the area, the concrete area where they go outside, there's always lots of crows in the sky. So they decided that they'd have crow as their totem animal. Oh, it was fantastic. They really loved it. And I was able to mention to one of my friends who uh, published books, and he donated all these wonderful books to the prison library for these people, the ones that went to the meditation class, all to do with healing and meditation and the Native American spirituality. And then one wonderful thing that happened was that one time a crow fell out of the sky. Something had it'd been damaged in some way, I don't know how, but fell out into the stone area where they were allowed to go out sometimes. And Julie smuggled the crow into her in, in, inside and um, they did the healing because they were learning Reiki and they did healing on the crow and the next day the crow seemed to come good and what the, which was a wonderful thing for them. They took it out and then released it and it actually flew back up into the sky and that was like a spiritual experience for them which was really fantastic. But what I'd like to tell you is that as a result of doing all this work inside, it was only just once a week, but um, doing it, they got really hooked on it. And then when Judy, this is the one that did all the armed robberies and everything, she was in and out of prison a lot. And when she finally went out, she set up, after going to all the meditation classes, she set up a woman's refuge centre in Sydney. And that developed into an amazing, amazingly successful refuge centre. And, and the women that would go there, she they could relate to her and she could relate to them so well because she'd been through so much. So she had so much love and care for these women. And that was one terrific thing. And then the other one, Julie, um, the public and the media had given her a nickname of the Angel of Death, which is terrible. Um, uh, but anyway, when she got out, she um, started helping young people and teenagers at King's Cross and supporting them and helping them. And they, they, both of them just loved what they did and it was completely different from the lives they'd led up to them then. So that was wonderful thing to witness and be a part of, you know. So fantastic. And, uh, yeah, as you're telling it, I just think what a wonderful act of service that you performed doing that, even though you say it was just once a week, that seems to have been plenty. And the ripple yeah. effects of your of your act of giving, of sharing your techniques in teaching meditation and, you know, helping to awaken the women's spirituality, yeah. that's had such wonderful effects. And God knows how that's still rippling out. That both of them are now passed over. Okay. Julia and Judy. Yes, but I'm just uh, thinking uh, in terms of the people that they helped at the refuge oh, and so yes, on. Yes. When you think about it, yes, it goes on, doesn't it? It goes on. It's a loud effect. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How amazing. Yeah, they were good. I just admired them so much. What? They, how they turned their lives around. It's a real act of courage and sort of backing yourself finally, and just thinking, I'm I'm going to help myself. Yeah. You know, which is wonderful. And they really grew from it. Yes. That's great. And certainly your book explores the role of adversity, of trauma, of tragedy, the role that that can play in a spiritual awakening. And that's demonstrated yeah. in the stories that you've just shared about Judy and Julia in the prison. And it's also explored in your own life, Joe, with yeah. what you've shared with us in terms of all of that loss around your family and, and the, the illness and everything that was happening and how that spurred you in a way, to to take the trip that you'd always yearned to, to go on. Yes, it did, yes. What, what can you tell us about, just in terms of a reflection, about that, about difficult times in our lives and how they can enfold a gift? If I could just give one little example of my father. Before he met my mother, back in the 1920s, he was a ventriloquist in Vaudeville, and he met... Um, a young girl called Winnie, who was um, what they called a soubrette. She was a singer and dancer. And they fell in love and they they travelled all around Australia with the portable troupe and he, they worked at the Tivoli Theatre too. This is 1920s, not yet, though. And anyway, Winnie became pregnant and they were so excited. And when it came time to give birth to the baby, both Winnie 
and the baby died. And so dad lost both his wife and the baby. And he was an atheist at the time. You know, he didn't believe in anything. And he was, it was a terrible tragedy. And another vaudevillian who had got going to, who had been going to seances and things said, look, come with me to one of these seances and it might help you to realize that there is life after death, that, that people do live on. And dad did go, he didn't want to go, but the medium there channeled his wife, Winnie, and the fact is that what Winnie said through this stranger to Dad, she said just tiny details that not a, nobody present could have possibly known, and it absolutely transformed Dad's life. And he um, became a member of that group and then joined another group, um, and then that, in that group, that was an amazing group, and Dad wrote about it in a book called The Certainty of Eternity. But see, then Dad changed, and his, as a result of tragedy, Dad changed so much. And then he met Mum, because Mum did lots of good work at a mission in South Melbourne. He joined in on that, and they provided support and comfort to the homeless and the poor people in South Melbourne at that time. We're talking about the 1930s now and early 1940s. And they, they, mum clothed the, the children, dad got all sorts of things in for the families like food from Heinz and various uh, companies had donated. And his whole life, for the rest of his life, was devoted, devoted to being of service to other people through the mission. They did so much through this mission in South Melbourne in Dorcas Street. So his life completely changed as a result of total tragedy, you know, mm. losing his first wife and baby. So that's an example of tragedy causing somebody to change and start to advance on a more spiritual level. Yes, and uh, I'd like to share with the audience that I am reading your father, Les Danby's book, it's called, as you said, The Certainty of Eternity, and it is absolutely wonderful. It is yes. so, so captivating. I've been waking up in the middle of the night, sometimes not being able to sleep, and I'll just start reading it, and I just <laughs> love it, love it. It tells yes. of so many wonders. So he yes. tells the story, just to fill the in, in the audience a little bit more, as you said, he was following, uh, sitting with a particular seance group, and the medium that they were sitting with was a very unassuming, quiet man called Stan Walsh, who was one of the most gifted mediums I've ever heard about in my life. Yes. Just astonishing. And this man, Stan, would, uh, he had all these gifts that developed. One of them was uh, the apports that would come from nowhere in the room yes. <laughs> when um, the people were sitting. And your dad ended up being entrusted with a lot of these apports. Now, there were some crucifixes. There was a little dagger that it came with the story that it had belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots. All of these amazing things, art, art that was apported and or painted by Stan, spiritual art. Are these things now with you, Joe? Or yes. They are. Wow. Yes, I, I, I now have the apports. Oh, wow. How amazing. Yeah. I've given some away. Um, uh, but uh, I, I have I have the main ones, yeah. Oh, how I, I've gave <laughs> I've given a couple of um, crucifixes away to to lovely people who run spiritualist churches here in Melbourne, and um, but I do have the apports, and I, I love it that now science it easily uh, just can easily display how something can be apported you know, be materialised. There's a scientific um, answer to that, on materialisation of apports. It seems to be that the two, spirituality and science, do seem to be inching towards each other finally. What a wonderful story your dad tells and what a, what an astounding man, that medium Stan Walsh. Oh, Stan, yes. It was amazing. And then Stan, I, call, I used to call him Uncle Stan even though I never met him because he was such a close member of the family he passed away in 1939 and I was born in 1940 so I didn't meet get to meet him the, the three main people in that group were Stan, Stan and somebody who I called Uncle Bert Bert and Dad and um, 
Uncle Bert still lived, and so Uncle Bert and Dad kept the, the group going at our home. So from when I was born, from a child on, there was once a week what they used to call back in those days seances. But Stan wasn't present, and there was no no materialisation of airports. Mm-hmm. Tell us but, about what it was like for you in those early years to grow up in this unique household where there is a spiritual meeting once a week where your father is this deeply spiritual man who's come to it, as you say, through through this terrible trauma. Your mother, also an amazing woman, you share yes. parts of her diary in your book, The Final Mystery, and she was a very gifted woman, a gifted writer as well. So yes. tell us a bit about the spiritual foundation of your childhood growing up with these quite astounding parents. Yes, well, it was... Um it, it weird because it would to me it was normal. My sister and I, everything was normal because we didn't know anything else, and so that was all normal. But once we got to an age where we went to school, if I, because I because I was well aware of my guides as a child, you know, this, um, for instance, uh, Whitebird. I was told Whitebird was my guide, and there's a beautiful painting of Whitebird. I've got it. Um, and she, which was done through Stan. He did the painting. He channeled the painting and of White Bird, and then I was told that White Bird was my guide. So I've always thought of that, and I've got the painting. But at school, if I talk about White Bird, who's White Bird? Oh, my guide. What are you talking about? <laughs> and then I was ridiculed a lot of the time, so I learned to shut up. <laughs> yeah. So that was my childhood. Everything was normal at home. But once you step outside and, and amongst friends, you, you, I found that you couldn't even talk about things like that. This is because we're talking about the 1940s when I was a child and the 1950s when I was a teenager. I still couldn't talk about it. Oh. There was not another another person I knew that was into anything like this, you know. So did that mean that you and your sister became quite close because you could share this stuff with each other? I guess, well, because she was the same. She it was just normal. And we were very naughty young girls with... Because with the seances, so-called seances, it was all channeled work, and then they would—they always sang a song, a hymn actually, "Abide with Me." They'd sing that first, and it was very reverent and very, very, very spiritual. These groups, and so therefore, Dad and Mum would would not allow. Um, anything like a Ouija board because they thought it wouldn't be good for us to have anything to it because my sister and I wanted to do something too and we thought oh wouldn't it be fun to do a Ouija board but what we did was when once mum and dad settled down at night and thought we were in bed asleep we'd get up and use a Ouija board (laughs) we were very naughty yeah we did that (laughs) yeah and did you get scared or did you get results what did you was there any particular moment that stands out from your sneaky sessions with the Ouija board no never got scared as you probably know with the Ouija board it can go very fast and hard spelling Mm. out words and it was like that we had no control over it would just do it and so we'd be thrilled and then other times it just didn't work so sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't but the questions we asked weren't very spiritual I'm afraid it's like (laughs) Uh, as as we were young teenagers, I remember wanting this boy at the church called Bruce to ask me out, and I was saying, "When will Bruce ask me out? When will Bruce?" I was, I was asking questions that weren't very spiritual, <laughs> but it makes <laughs> then, sense. Yeah, sometimes we'd, we'd work well; there'd be beautiful information given. Other times, when we were insisting on boyfriends and things like that, it just didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And tell us, so your dad was, he didn't want you doing that. And I think you talk about this in the book. Uh, your dad feared that the Ouija board could be, could let in some lower energy spirits. Is that right, Joe? That's what he was worried about. Yeah. It could, they didn't think of spirits as being bad or evil. They they thought of them as being people who've passed over perhaps very suddenly and were very angry that they had or or passed over suddenly and were fearful and didn't know what was happening. And these people would try, would try to get through. So it was okay in an adult group because they could help them and help them pass on and send them into the light. But kids on, on a Ouija board wouldn't know how to do that. They would be thinking that they were bad spirits and they wouldn't you know, 
we didn't have the understanding that the adults did. And that's a really beautiful part of your father's book, The Certainty of Eternity. He talks a lot in there about the spiritual groups with Stan and a lot of the time they were involved with crossing over these confused, upset spirits. And as you say, he never calls them evil or anything like that. They're just, they're in a lower state of consciousness. They're not sure what's happened and they just would love them and pray for them and help them in that way, which is something I thought was unique. I'd not read about a spiritual circle really focusing on on that aspect of really helping the spirits. And it, it strikes me that it's kind of an extension of your dad's compassion and the group's compassion. They help the living, they help those on the other side too. Yes. One example that stands out in my memory was that uh, I thought it was fantastic that the Australian criminal called Squizzy Taylor, which most Australians would have heard of, he came through and he, he there was communication with Squizzy Taylor and that was fantastic and he, he said that what he was doing over there now was help. He was there for other criminals who had passed over and were confused, fearful and angry. And he said he was helping them. Isn't that wonderful? It's similar to the work that you did in the prison. Yeah, yes, it's true, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah, wonderful. So it's, it's good. I think it's good. I think that in the spiritual world, and if we practice spiritual things, it's very important to be non-judgmental and perhaps open ourselves to, you know, like after the time that I spent teaching the meditation and healing in the Malawa Maximum Security Prison, once I found out that I know that they were in, they did the wrong things. I'm not condoning for a moment what they did, but I had an understanding of why they did it because I was told of these terrible things that happened in their lifetime and in their childhood and even as babies, terrible things. So you can sort of understand that they would grow up hating things and <laughs> wanting mm-hmm. drugs, no matter if they had to steal things to pay for them and whatever. You had a better understanding. You didn't condone what they did that your understanding became greater. Yes. And I think that was important. It's very important and it aligns with a lot of uh, the spiritual teachings that come through the near-death experience when people have their life review. And I oh, don't, yes. yeah, I don't know if you've read about that or seen videos about that, but that's a very common aspect of the life review is to go into the life of a person that perhaps you, you've not been able to forgive or you've judged and it takes you into their life and you're able to see the foundation of their lives and therefore understand better what yes. led to their actions. So I think it's very important. And, and I remember, if I can just give you one example yes. from Malawa, um, Julie... She was in and out all the time, as just like that one I mentioned, Judy. And she was forever... What she did was she used to steal all the time in order to get the money to pay for drugs. And that's what she did all the time. So she was a thief and she was, you know, and so on, whatever you want to call them. But the thing is, her here's an example. When she was a baby, she was very young, not a baby, but like about two years old, her father and mother had split up and the father kidnapped her and took him, her to where he lived and he lived in a boarding house in one room and he was a truck driver and he would sit her on the floor in a nappy with a bowl of water on the floor and some biscuits and stuff and then go off to work for the whole day and she she's a child who's sitting on the floor in a nappy having to drink water out of a bowl of water and eat whatever he'd left there. And that's, that's that went on for months and months and months. It's heartbreaking, Joe. utterly heartbreaking? heartbreaking. But can't it make you open your heart and understand better, yes. you know? Yes, yes, uh, you, you're entirely right. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Um, now, just to to backtrack a moment to your, your childhood and your spiritual um, growth and growing up with your parents, so you mentioned White Bird. You learnt she was your guide. Now, yes. Native American figures uh, feature a lot in the story of uh, of Stan Walsh and his spiritual circle. And indeed, your dad had a Native American guide as well, as did the medium Stan Walsh. Now, yes. I'm just wondering if that is what helped formulate your fascination with that culture and your desire to 
to go and spend time with the Hopi tribe as you, you went on to do? Oh, absolutely it would have because there was nothing else in my life like at school, learning at school or friends. I think there's nothing to do with Native American spirituality. When you think about it, 1940s and 1950s, it's, it was very British. Everything was very British. So I would say that that did spark my desire to go, you know. And I believe one of the apports, and I wonder if you still have it, is an astonishing headdress. From, oh, yes. Yeah. Tell, it, tell us about bonnet. that. That was a leather bonnet that Whitebird wore. Yeah, that was materialised. Yes, as a child, I loved it, and I used to wear it all the time, run around wearing it inside the house, of course, not outside. <clears throat> and I've still got that now. And, um, yeah, so, I, I, yes, I think that all of that sort of influenced me to want to go to the... Um, to the Native American reservation and I was thrilled to go there and uh, camp on their reservation that was in um, Sedona, Arizona and it was with the Navajo Indians and Hopi Indians and they allowed me to be a part of their ceremonies, you know, spiritual ceremonies. It was great. How fantastic. And so just so that we get our chronology right, this was your second trip. So you'd gone to Egypt, you'd done your dream trip there You'd come back? Yes, I came back. Yeah. And then two years later, I did the second trip. Okay, so this is where you went to the US. You had an amazing experience there, which I'd love you to share. And yeah. I think you know the one I'm talking about with White Buffalo Calf Woman. Please tell us about all of... Oh, yeah. that was incredible, yes. Well, it, it was the end of the day and it, uh, I was staying in a log cabin in Sedona and... I was pretty exhausted. I lay on the bed. And it, when I was in that sort of... People listening to this would understand that state that you can get in sometimes where you're half awake and half asleep. And I was like that. And then suddenly it was like I was out of my body and I was in the presence of the most incredible woman. She was exquisite. She was cloaked in a shawl of shimmering white light. And she was just standing there before me and she was emanating incredible energy, like very strong energy. It, she was so beautiful and shimmering with light, or the, the shawl she was wearing. It was almost felt almost more physical than physical. The energy was so strong and she just was so beautiful and she was just looking at me and I was so shocked. I was able to take it in briefly but I, I was sort of so shocked because as I said it, even though it was like a spirit it felt more physical than physical it felt terribly real and I sort of went like that and then I shot back into my body again and she was gone and then I kept trying and trying to get out of my body again so I could see her but it, I just didn't succeed and that was that and I was trying to think who it would be and I did, that came into my mind, maybe it was the Virgin Mary, because she would have been like that, but then I, I sort of chided myself and said, as if the Virgin Mary would be visiting you. <laughs> um, so, of course, it wasn't her. I couldn't figure out who it was. It was just absolutely beautiful. But the next day, I was talking to a friend called Dan, who lives there in Sedona. I, I told him about it, and... I told him that I thought it was the Virgin Mary, but that would be a joke because the Virgin Mary wouldn't be visiting me. So he said maybe she was the white buffalo calf woman because she'd have a similar energy to the Virgin Mary. So I said to him, well, I've heard of the white buffalo calf woman before, but I can't quite remember who she was again, what happened. And he said, well, he told me that she'd saved the lives of thousands of Lakota Indians by bringing herds of buffalo to them at a time when they were all starving and everything else. Anyway, she provided all these uh, buffalo and then she promised to return one day and before she then turned into a white buffalo calf and disappeared very, very quickly. And But she had promised that she'd return. That was interesting. I learned something about the white buffalo calf woman. Maybe it was her that I saw. Maybe it was that, that spirit was her. I don't know. But a couple of days later, I was on a plane going to Mexico and I, got, I opened up the newspaper called USA Today, an American newspaper, and the headline on the second page was 
behold, a white buffalo miracle birth beckons Indians to Janesville, Wisconsin. And the story was about the fact that a white buffalo calf had been born, which is very, very unusual. And it, the article was about thousands of people flocking to the farm, hoping to have, get a glimpse of the, the white female calf that was born. And it was heralded by American Indians as a prophecy come true. They believed that they were um, that it was uh, the woman of the white buffalo calf woman. They believe it was her return because of what she had said a long time ago that she would return, and before she went, she was turned into a white buffalo calf, and she said she'd return. But it, her real, the way she really looked was um, a, a like a, a woman in a shining white dress who looked absolutely beautiful. So what happened was that everybody thought it was like a miracle that the white buffalo calf woman had returned. It was the return of the white buffalo calf woman in the shape of the little calf. So I then thought to myself, my God, maybe I had witnessed the white buffalo calf woman because that's what I'd witnessed two nights before. And I just felt as if I'd had a genuine experience. It made me think I'd had a genuine experience of out-of-body experience of witnessing an incredible spirit, the white buffalo calf woman. What an yeah. amazing experience. I'm familiar with the story of the white buffalo calf woman and the prophecy that she'll return. I, I just marvel at the at you having had the chance to see her and it sounds like she came with an incredibly beautiful energy that you wanted more of. You wanted to see yeah, her again. Absolutely. I, I was sort of shocked, you know, for it to happen because it was so real. I, as I said, she was just brilliant and had a shining white garment on. But what sort of impressed me the most was this very strong energy that as if she was more physical than physical human beings, very strong phys physical energy, even though it was a spirit. Yeah, it was amazing. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us, Joe. And you said that you were on the plane to Mexico and you actually went on to have some pretty profound experiences there as well at some ancient uh, Mayan sites, I believe. Tell us Absolutely. about Yeah, tell us about that. Well, the amazing thing was that um I oh, I had a lot of different experiences. I one of them one of them was not so good. It, I went to Mayan. I was very interested in the Mayan Indians. And I went, went, first of all, I was where was I? Meridia. I was, oh, I've forgotten. I was, I was in some um, place. I can't quite remember the name of it. But then I went to the Yucatan Peninsula and I stayed in a hotel that was set in 100 acres of jungle and it lay on the outskirts of the largest archaeological dig in Mexico, Chichen Itza. And I wandered out this day it was in the morning, I wandered out and I came across this huge building and I knew it was called the Kukulkan Castle. It was an enormous pyramid and I climbed up to the top of it and I looked across and I found myself facing another enormous huge stone structure and I knew that was called the Temple of Warriors because I've done my research. Anyway, I thought, oh, I'll go over to the Temple of Warriors. So um, as I headed towards the Temple of Warriors and started climbing the stone steps, I started to feel very, very uneasy. Um, I didn't know why, but it was a, a, a strong emotional feeling of uneasiness. And I climbed up the stone steps and I came to a statue of the rain god uh, called Chark Mool. And it, it, this was a terrible statue. It was where thousands of human hearts had been placed on his abdomen in exchange for rain. And I knew that, that all of this stuff had happened in the past, in ancient times, that maidens, in fact, maidens felt uh, privilege if they were chosen to have their hearts cut out and put on this um, on the chart mill to get rain. And that was the Mayan tradition. But I felt absolutely very, very upset um, about seeing it and I returned back to the um, hotel. But the next day I decided I hadn't finished looking, so I went back, hadn't finished looking at everything, I went back and I bumped into some. There were a lot of tourists there, uh, British and American tourists, and you know, I, I sort of feel ashamed of myself now. So we took photos of each other sitting on the 
Chuck Moore, where the hearts were put down. It, it sounds terrible that we're all doing, taking photos of each other, sitting on it, and also sitting on the um, sacrificial altar where it occurred, where the hearts were taken out. But then all the tourists disappeared, and I was on my own again. And a guy came up to me and introduced himself. He was from America. He said, did you know that it was the summer solstice today and that many sacrifices were made at this time? And he added that sacrifices were also made at full, full moon here. And he said, but and the full moon is only two days away, so we've got a double whammy, the summer solstice and the full moon. And then he told me about... Um, it, with the Mayans, they did this sacrifice for money and the maidens, they weren't forced to do this. They allowed it to happen because they felt privileged, as I mentioned before. But then he told me something I didn't know so much about. And he told that later when the Toltecs came, the Toltecs were very, very cruel, the Toltec priests. And they also used sacrifice on the same places, but as punishment. And they would put the person who was to be punished um, on the sacrificial altar, tear out the heart, put the heart on the charcoal, um, and it was a punishment. And the priest would drink the blood from the human hearts for personal empowerment. And he said how terrible this was. And he started to speak about past lives. He said, do you believe in past lives? And I said, yes, I do. And I was feeling more and more uneasy because I had thought I must have been one of those maidens who'd been sacrifice and he said that he felt terrible um, because he believed he had been one of the Toltec priests and he'd come there to try to make peace and and to say prayers for the poor people who had been sacrificed and then the more he spoke the worse I felt and I started to think maybe I wasn't one of the people who'd been maidens who'd been sacrificed maybe I was one of the Toltec priests and he said would you like to join me in a prayer here for the poor, the people maybe their spirits were still here he said he'd like to make peace and he wanted to say a prayer you know so I joined in a prayer with him then I at some stage or other I really strongly believed that I had been one of those Toltec priests as well which wasn't good anyway we did a lot of meditation there I just I don't know, somehow or other, I ended up thinking that I might have been one of the Toltec priests that had been responsible for these maidens being carried right through crowds of people, carried through crowds of people on on what they call beers, B-I-E-R-S, beers, to be placed on the sacrificial altar. It wasn't very good. It wasn't a good experience, but it was a very, it felt like a very strong past life experience. I wasn't wrapped in it, but because none of us like to think we've had terrible, bad past lives. <laughs> no, that's right. And that <laughs> feeling of unease that you describe, it followed you and you went on to actually get quite ill in the yes, next year. It, it did. It, it had a, a strong effect on me um, and I felt terrible and I had to go from Mexico to meet my daughter in Hawaii. And I had to catch a plane. And when I got to the airport, that sense of uneasiness got worse and worse and worse. And I felt dreadful. And I actually vomited in the toilets and everything else. And I got out and I had to catch the plane. But I collapsed. And an ambulance was called. And I, I was, it just sounds just terrible, but I was placed on, um, I guess you'd call it a stretcher by the ambulance people and I was taken held high above all these crowds at the airport. It was like I was one of the maidens, again, who I had been responsible for being in this position. I didn't think of it at the time, but when I was telling a friend about it, she said, maybe, you know, you were having to experience that to find out what it was like, you know, being carried on a beer amongst crowds. Mm. And anyway, what happened was that um, I ended up in hospital in Los Angeles. So I don't know, maybe that terrible breakdown was caused by a virus that I caught or something that I had caught there in Mexico, it might be, or maybe it was some terrible past life uh, manifestation in the current life of reminding me of what I'd done. I don't know. And Joe, uh, prior to having these experiences where you have a sense of your past lives, had yeah. you had you had that before? I know that you were doing hypnosis and past life regression 
but had you ever had anything as powerful before you had the sense that you were the, the girl in Egypt and the Toltec priest? Not as powerful as those two. I, I, what I'd had before were past life memories, mainly in Egypt and in as a Native American Indian and as an Egyptian. But they weren't powerful like that. They, they were strong, and I used to write them down afterwards, and I believed that they were true past life memories. But that's different from experiencing something so physical and so awful. Mm, and that's quite chilling when you describe being held up high on the stretcher over the crowds. Like that is, that's just, you know, you just marvel at things like this, don't you? Yes. Because it's like a coincidence, isn't mm. it? It's like it could have been just that I'd caught something that made me sick. But it's weird that um, it was what happened was exactly what I would have caused in a past life. And I'd just been dealing with it all. I'd just been to the very place where it all happened, you know, which we rarely get to experience. So, Joe, I guess we're we're getting close to winding up now, and I'd yes. like to I'd like to return to to Egypt and your affinity with Egypt and. You, as you said earlier, you ended up going there 17 times because you manifested your dream job, which yes. was to take tour groups there every year. And there's quite yes. a, there's a lovely story about how that came to be, which speaking of synchronicity as we just have, this yes. is a, a moment of synchronicity too. Tell us about that. Oh, that was amazing. Um, after I'd done the three trips, Egypt first and then uh, the other ones, North America, India, Mexico, and Hawaii. And then the third trip, I, I did, went to England. I wanted to go to the Stonehenge circles and, you know, the crop circles yes. and all of that. And I came back to Australia and I wrote articles about all these experiences and the New Age magazines were publishing them. And I was getting published a lot on these stories. And then there was a, a woman up in Queensland a travel agent, but she wanted to create tours to sacred places so that people who go on in these groups, they could go and meditate in, in sacred places and so on. And um, But she needed somebody who had experience in it. So she contacted me and asked me, would I be interested in taking groups? Now, the thing was, I'd spent every cent of my money and I really, really wanted to go back especially Egypt, but I couldn't afford it. So what happened was that um, I couldn't go back and I was really so sad that I couldn't return, especially to Egypt. And then she rings and says, would you take groups there? She said, I'll pay for everything, your fares, your hotel, your food, everything, and give you pocket money. And she said, if you do it, you know, because she said, I need someone to take groups, not just a, a group coordinator, somebody to take the groups. I need somebody who, who knows how to take meditations and, and is happy to go to sacred sites and so on. So, you know, you can imagine what my answer was. <laughs> so, and she arranged that we, she had this, because well, I think she was paying out money to do it to these people in Egypt, but she arranged that for us to be able to go inside the Great Pyramid in the middle of the night to do two-hour meditations and things like that. So I was able to do things by saying yes to her that I couldn't do as a single person going because, you know, single people aren't, aren't allowed inside the Great Pyramid at night. No, and you but write about this. It, yes, know? this is so beautiful. These parts in your book are really wonderful how you share those stories about meditating in these absolutely incredible sites in the yes. middle of the night, just wonderful. Wow. It was fantastic, yes. And what, some of the best things were, you know, doing the meditations in the middle of the night. Nobody is allowed to do that anymore. That's, people, aren't, people aren't allowed in at night in the pyramids anymore, so we were so lucky back then. People are no longer allowed to go up to where that Chark Mall is in Mexico, you know, mm -hmm. um, and at where the... Uh, sacrificial altar is in Chuck Mill. Nobody is allowed there anymore. So um, we were so lucky and then I was so lucky, so lucky because I then ended up taking, uh, I, I ended up going to Egypt 17 times. So I, I took groups over and over to these places and absolutely loved it. That is just such a wonderful testament to just staying steadfast to your dream and knowing what it is you want to do and then life kind of mirrors that back to you and helps you out, you know. <laughs> yes, yes, I was very, very lucky. If people say anything to me now, what do you boil it all down to? And 
I, I just boiled it all down to getting to a, a terrible stage of my life of not being able to keep going. I was very... Um, I needed to do something, but I didn't know what, and I didn't think I could do it, and I thought I'd be selfish if I spent the money on it. But um, got my inspiration from words, if if I could tell them to you, because this is what really helped me. And Please. This is what could help, could help other people. It was channeled work. The medium was Daryl Anker, and he channeled um, a being called Bashar. Mm. And these are the words. These helped me to decide to drop everything and go. And it says... Whatever excites you the most is what you're meant to be doing. Excitement is the signal that you're on the right path. So follow your excitement and you will be following your sole purpose. And I, I, what excited me the most at that time was to go to Egypt and go to the Native American reservations. Nothing else could excite me more than that. And so I decided to take his advice and that's why I did it. And I took a huge leap of faith in doing it. But the whole point is that in doing so, after writing articles about it, all of a sudden I could keep doing it over and over again, year after year, without paying out a cent. You did go on to do that well into your 70s and I really yes. tip my hat to your energy because I, I'm not a very good international traveller. I find oh, it yes. challenging. So that's very, uh, yeah, very impressive, Joe. Now, Speaking of that, your your seventies, yep. you're soon to turn eighty one, Joe, and I just yes. I love being able to have the opportunity to speak to you today and just mine that rich wisdom of yours and all of these beautiful experiences. All of that in mind, what would you say is the standout spiritual experience of your life? Oh, the standout one. Well, I'd say there's several. There's the occasions where we meditated in the middle of the night inside the king's chamber. Everybody had great spiritual experiences there. Of course, the white buffalo calf woman experience. And also when I was in Mexico, I was privileged. I was so lucky to be invited in a ceremony underground, in in an underground, what they call a kiva, underneath a misa, M-E-S-A, with the Hopi women and children. And the Kachina warriors danced to materialise abundance of corn there. But it was the most extraordinary experience being underground in a cave with all these Hopi Indian women and children. And another one that I really will never forget was meditating inside crop circles with my friend Paladin. So they were all very standout spiritual experiences. Today, what's been so wonderful is that you've shared with us like this delicious taster of all of these deep and ancient spiritual traditions that you, through your travels, had the opportunity to experience. I wonder, after this long, beautiful life of spiritual inquiry, if there's a particular teaching or teacher that stands out for you, one that you continue to draw on, Jo? Well, now, these days, yeah. well, first of all, um, would be the Native American spirituality. That's always stuck with me because they believe that we are just as important as the earth itself, the trees, the animals, the birds. Everybody is equal, and I love that. All people are equal, and we're equal to nature and animals and all of that. I love that. I love the original teachings of Jesus, who the, those original simple ones of love thy neighbor, do unto others as you do unto yourself, and so on. And the Buddha has similar teachings. Um, And I also got interested in Hinduism because they believe that all religions have truth in them and they believe that all the different religions are like different rivers that all flow into the same ocean. They end up in the same ocean. So I like that because I like the idea of embracing everybody and everything. Oh. Without judgment. So tell us, Joe, where can listeners learn more about you and how can they purchase your book? They can purchase the book on Amazon. Okay. You know, Amazon.com. Yep, I'll put the link actually in the show notes and make it easy for oh, everyone. Okay. Uh, and they can, they can yeah, purchase from Amazon.com and from the publishing web, publisher's website, which is um, animaldreamingpublishing.com. Fantastic. And your father's wonderful book that I, I so, I'm so loving, I don't want it to end, is, oh, is available through White Crow Books as well. That's so right. I'll, White Crow in England, yes. Yes, that's I'll, right. I'll put a link to that. 
Now, oh, fantastic. <laughs> any um, last words of encouragement for our listeners as we come to the end of our conversation, Jo? Last words of encouragement? Yeah. Uh, oh, look, the last words would be so simple would be what Bashar said, follow your excitement, um, that you're excited. It, no matter what's happening in your life, if you really feel you've got to do something or if you don't know what you're meant to be doing, if something excites you, it's a signal that you're, that's what your soul wants to do. So follow the excitement. Wonderful. That's what I'd say. Wonderful note to to come to a close. But before we do, what I'd really love is if you could read out a poem that is called What is Dying? Now, it's yes. a it's a poem that was written in the 1880s by somebody called Bishop Brent, and yes. it's a poem that your dad shared with you following the deaths of your sister and your nephew. That's right. And it, you've got it in your book, and I just I think it's Absolutely beautiful, and I was. Yes, I do too. Would you mind reading it out, please, Joe? No, of course, I'll do it now. Lovely. It's called "What Is Dying," and this is the poem: A ship sails, and I stand watching it till it fades on the horizon. Someone at my side says she is gone. Gone where? Gone? Gone from my sight? That is all. She is just as large as when I saw her. The diminished size and total loss of sight is in me, not her. And just at that moment, when someone at my side says, she is gone, there are others who are watching her coming, and other voices take up the glad shout, here she comes, and that is dying. And that's the poem. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been an utter pleasure to speak with you today. Such a delight. And uh, oh, thank you. I, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for spending time with us today on Spirit Sisters. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review the show. Have an experience you'd like to share with me? Get in touch at my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. After all, There's nothing more powerful than a story.